Good afternoon. My name is Karen Sampson Hoffman. Today's webinar is How Executive Functions Affect Adult Relationships with psychologist Ari Tuckman, author of More Attention, Less Deficit, Successful Strategies for Adults with ADHD. Ask the Expert is a monthly series presented by the National Resource Center on ADHD. The National Resource Center is a partnership between CHAD and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and serves as the national clearinghouse for the latest evidence-based information on ADHD. It is a privilege to introduce today's expert, Dr. Ari Tuckman. Ari Tuckman is, has given more than 250 presentations and does a popular podcast about ADHD and routinely earns excellent reviews for his ability to make complicated information understandable and useful. He is the author of three books, Understand Your Brain, Get More Done, the ADHD Executive Functions Workbook, more Attention, Less Deficit, Successful Strategies for Adults with ADHD, and Integrative Treatment for Adult ADHD, a practical, easy-to-use guide for clinicians. He is a psychologist in private practice in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Again, we are very pleased to welcome Dr. Ari Tuckman as our expert today. Dr. Tuckman, if you are ready to begin. I am. Wonderful. Okay, so, um, well, it's a pleasure to be here. I always love doing stuff for Chad, and um, I'm very excited about this particular topic that we're talking about today, which is executive functions. And um, it's kind of hard to talk about ADHD without also talking about executive functions. But what we're going to talk about today in particular is how executive functions relate to not just kind of getting things done, as in, you know, remembering to call the plumber tomorrow or something, but how it relates to social relationships. And we are obviously social creatures. We live with other people. We do things with other people. So relationships and social matters are extremely important. So, um, so in just in general, though, you know, as if this is not kind of a really obvious statement, but we live in a complicated world. There's a lot going on, there's a lot of distractions, there's a lot of temptations, there's always more than one thing to do at any given moment. So the challenge then is to do the right thing at the right time. Now perhaps not all the time because you know nobody's that good, but hopefully like most of the time you do the right thing at the right time. But in order to do that right thing, in order to even know what that right thing is, you need to filter out all the other extraneous stimuli and thoughts so that you can figure out what is the most important thing in that moment. So, for example, you know, I was hearing, as I'm presenting here, I hear the mailman dropping off some mail in the, you know, outside my door. Is that relevant? No, not at all except as an example of a distraction in the world, I suppose. So, you know, the mailman coming is not important in this moment. Now, granted, there might be other circumstances where the mailman coming really is a very important thing, and I definitely want to make sure that I notice it and pay attention to it. But the way, then, <clears throat> that we decide what is most important in this one moment is that we look back to the past to tell us is this sort of a thing important? Has it been important before? We also look forward into the future in the sense of, is this something I can do later? What are my other options? So like, I don't know, if I have to make a phone call during business hours, I should probably do that sooner. Then email I can send out later because I can do that after business hours. So I'm thinking about the future 
as well as the past, and both of them then inform the choices that we make in the present. So in this moment, I'm looking backwards and forwards in addition to what's right in front of me. Now the challenge, of course, is that the things that are most important for us to pay attention to and to think about and to do something with are not necessarily kind of what I call the stickiest, meaning that our attention doesn't stick most easily to the things that are most important. Sometimes things that are a whole lot less important grab our attention a whole lot stronger. So let's look at the next slide then. So this is where the executive functions come in. And what the executive functions are is they're some of our highest level cognitive processes. So in other words, the processes that help us sort of process information. And <clears throat> what they do is they help us manage the complexity of life so that we can create a better future. So it's not just about what is the best thing for me right in this one moment or what's most interesting or exciting or fulfilling in this one moment, but it's also about what's going to be most helpful for me in the bigger picture. Um, what's going to be most helpful for, for me to now to do now in terms of tomorrow and next week and next month and next year. So the executive functions then are actions that we direct towards ourselves, that there are things that we do to change what we do, what do we respond to, what do we not respond to. Um, one of the ways of describing the executive functions that I sometimes use is that they allow us to do what we know. And Russell Barkley, who's one of the you know, big experts in the world of ADHD, has a great line where he says that ADHD is not a disorder of knowing what to do. ADHD is, is, is a disorder of doing what you know. So, for example, folks with ADHD know you should show up on time to things. They know generally it's kind of helpful to have things more organized rather than less organized. Um, they know you're supposed to turn in homework or remember that thing that your wife told you. All of this is very obvious. And in some ways, people with ADHD know this stuff far better than anybody else because they get far more reminders about it than anybody else. So this is where the executive functions come in. It's that folks with ADHD know all of these things and yet somehow in that moment, they don't do that thing that they know they should do. And the reason is that their executive functions aren't quite clicking in and doing their job as effectively as ideally they would. So this is that disconnect between intentions and actions that folks with ADHD often experience. And this has, as we're going to focus on today, large social repercussions in the sense of how do people look at someone with ADHD. If they forget to do something, they look at it as, oh, well, they're just forgetful. Or do they look at it as, you know, she just doesn't care about me. And, you know, so that's a very different interpretation. That has a very big effect on the relationship. Um, let's look at the next slide. Now, certainly, Nobody is perfect and we all have our moments where we drop the ball, we forget something, we do the wrong thing, whatever. So nobody is perfect, but the problem is that folks with ADHD, because they're generally more inconsistent, they've more of these times where they don't do that thing that they know they should do, they run into trouble more frequently and they kind of use up their free passes a little bit too quickly. 
So um, the free passes means, you know, every now and then you run late to meet a friend, okay, it happens. But if you tend to run late more often than not, then you're out of free passes and now your friend starts getting frustrated. Unfortunately, this also creates a situation of, you know, of that we find what we look for. So if you're known as that guy who runs late, if you're 12 seconds late, everyone's going to be like, oh boy, there he goes again. And whether they say something or just think it, they will notice it. So, you know, there's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that can develop on some of this stuff as well. Next slide, please. So because folks with ADHD tend to struggle more with consistently doing the right thing at the right time, other people tend to step in to fill the void. And on the one hand, this totally makes sense in that if someone is, let's say, not good at remembering to call the bank tomorrow, it totally makes sense that their spouse or romantic partner would take on to themselves, you know what, I'll remind you. Or even without saying it, they'll send a text the next day. So that's good because getting the bank called or picking up milk on the way home or whatever is a good thing for everybody. Unfortunately, it can become a bit of a double-edged sword in the sense that the reminder in this case gets tired of doing the reminding. And the person being reminded kind of gets tired of being, you know, nagged or being doubted or whatever. So <clears throat> there's a lot of relationship dynamics that can develop there, whether it's a romantic relationship or friends or boss coworker or classmates or whatever. Um, you know, this kind of stepping in to help tends to be more acceptable for kids than for adults. So if you're 10 and the teacher reminds you to load up your backpack and your mom reminds you to put your homework in, you know, okay, fine, you're 10 years old, that's okay. But if you're 30 and you're still being reminded all the time, you might have more of a problem with it and the other people around you might have more of a problem with it. Now sometimes though, the thing that fills the void is not a person, but it's rather a bit of machine or, or a bit of technology or a machine or something. So like sending reminders on your smartphone or sending alarms or creating a list in your schedule or things like that or even just post-it notes are basically external executive functions. They help us do what we know we should do. So sometimes it's people and sometimes it's, it's tools that help us with some of these functions. Let's take a look at the next slide. So let's talk kind of very briefly about the six different executive functions. Now, you know, I could do sort of an hour easy on each of these. So, um, and I'm sure like I always hate when presenters say that, but um, you know, that we're just getting the, the quickie version here, but we're going to kind of set a bit of a foundation and then we're going to go into the questions. So um, different authors break up the executive functions a little bit differently. Um, we sort of slice and dice them a little bit differently and name them some different things sometimes, but but you know, overall, most people are talking about the same sorts of things. So um, what I'm, what I'm going to present here is my particular model of executive functions that I've written about and presented about. Other authors, it's a little different. That's okay. Um, so the first of the executive functions is something known as working memory, and this is that most immediate type of memory. It's that in the moment storing and processing of information. Um, 
our working memory is working. It is holding information on deck, and it's basically storing what we're paying attention to. So working memory and attention are pretty closely related. Um, <clears throat> also, I should say that the six executive functions we're going to talk about here are the ones that folks with ADHD tend to have the most trouble with. The rest of everything tends to work out pretty well, or at least no better or worse than everybody else. Um, the second executive function is what's known as the sense of time. So it's basically monitoring the passage of time and planning accordingly. So it's things like, you know, knowing inside your head without having to check a watch or anything, what time is it now? How long have I been doing this thing that I'm doing? How long is this next activity going to take? Um, how long, you know, I need to leave in 20 minutes. How long has it been? Is it, okay, it's 10 minutes now. Okay, it looks like it's about 16 minutes. Looks like it's 18. Okay, I should start getting ready. So it's all of that kind of like time management stuff. The third executive function is what's known as perspective memory. And this is basically remembering the right things at the right times and places. So it could be something as short as, <clears throat> um, you know, on the next slide I need to remember to say something or other. Um, or it could be something like tomorrow I have to call the bank or next week I have to do this or next year when I go to the CHAD conference, I need to remember to bring my projector or something. So it could be a short period of time, but it could also be a very long period of time. Um, my joke here is that poor perspective memory is where good intentions come to die. So basically, this is all that like, sure, I'll take care of that, whether it's you're telling yourself, I will take care of that, or whether you're telling your romantic partner or your boss or your friend, it's that, you know, it's perspective memory involves carrying intentions from this moment into the future. Folks with ADHD tend to not be as good at remembering things into the future and therefore tend to be seen as less reliable. Um, and then potentially taking it one step further, not just seen as less reliable, but also seen as less responsible. So it's not just that you're bad at remembering, it's that you forget because you don't care enough. And that's a whole judgment, you know, and that gets a very complicated dynamic at that point. Let's look at the next slide then. So the fourth executive function is what's known as emotional self-control. And this involves monitoring the extent to which your feelings influence your thoughts and actions. So you know, for all of us, we have feelings about things, and our feelings influence what we think and what we do. And they make life richer, and that's a good thing. Folks with ADHD tend to feel their feelings a little bit more intensely. And some of the implications of that is the more strongly you feel something, the more likely you are to be influenced by it. So you're more likely to act on your feelings. So, you know, I kind of call this emotional impulsivity, that folks with ADHD are more likely to be kind of driven by their feelings. Another implication is that when we feel something very strongly, we're less able to think about the future because we're acting more in the moment. Um, we're also less able, when we feel something strongly, to see beyond our feelings and to see somebody else's perspective. So, as a result, 
someone with ADHD who feels their feelings very strongly might be seen as sort of self-centered or that they don't care about other people's needs or they're kind of insensitive. And that's not really quite right because they can be very sensitive and very aware of other people's needs, but just when they're emotionally really fired up, they, they lose that perspective. The next executive function then is what's known as self-activation, and this is basically self-generating motivation. So it's getting up and going on something before the last minute. So because folks at ADHD are not as good at self-generating motivation, they're more dependent on external pressure. And external pressure means having a deadline right up against you or having somebody pushing you and nagging you to get it done. This is why folks with ADHD tend to procrastinate. If you're not as good at self-generating motivation, you're more dependent on external deadlines, and that's why you're going to wait to the last minute. So the social ramifications of this are that folks with ADHD tend then, again, to be kind of seen as less responsible, because why would you leave that to the last minute, you know, blah, 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 all that stuff that I'm sure everyone on the call here knows very well. And then finally, <clears throat> the last executive function, which is really sort of two, but I combine it into one for the sake of, of describing it, is hindsight and forethought. So hindsight is using past experiences to inform our decisions in the moment, and forethought is thinking through potential future outcomes to make a decision in the, in the present. So, for example, if I have to go into Philly tomorrow morning, I live outside in the suburbs, um, you know, I'll use hindsight to look back and say, if I need to be there at 8, I need to typically, at that time of day, it's going to take me this long to do it. You know, in the past, it's, it's been this long to this long, so I'm going to leave an hour ahead. And the forethought is thinking about, let's see, if, I'm, if I get there early, what, what would happen? Well, I've got stuff to do. I'll occupy myself. If I get there late, what happens? Well, if I'm late, then that screws up other things and maybe I can't keep my appointment and da-da-da-da-da. So let me leave there earlier. That's going to be better. So hindsight and forethought, looking backwards and looking forwards to make a better decision in the moment. And our first question comes from Tracy, and she would like to know, how can you help your spouse improve executive functions so that the spouse is not blaming you. Perhaps, uh, again, one spouse is blaming the other when the executive function really seems to be the problem. How can mm -hmm. you go about addressing that and kind of help both individuals? Right. So this is a great question. And part of why it's a great question is that it's a very complicated, multifaceted question. Um, in that, there's there are a couple things going on here. One of them is the executive functions themselves, but then the other is, uh, there's actually three things. I don't know, I might wind up with more by the time I'm done, but let's say three. Um, so the second thing that's going on is, how does this person's husband see his executive functions and the psychology involved in it, in the sense of, like, I'm just gonna make this up, like, let's say, as a result of a lifetime of, of ADHD, which probably was untreated for most of his life, I would guess, um, you know, he's used to having made too many mistakes. He's used to people being on him. He's used to being criticized. And as a result, he's gotten really kind of defensive about it. So it's not just that there's the executive functions that maybe he's not aware 
So like he forgot the fact that he forgot and he forgot the fact that she asked him to do something, let's say. Um, <clears throat> so it's not just the executive functions, but it's also his individual psychology. But then of course, there's also the wife's psychology and the dynamics between them. So, you know, if it's come to a point where he's feeling like he's always messing up in her eyes and she's always on him and she's feeling like he can't, she can't count on him, so she's going to be more angry more quickly. He's going to be more defensive more quickly. And of course, each one feeds the other. So, um, so the way to address this is, in terms of what do you do about the executive functions themselves, you know, medication is one of the, for ADHD, is one of the things that helps with executive functions, typically. It's not perfect and it works better for some people than others, but you know, medication tends to work pretty well for ADHD. Um, something called CogMed working memory training has some, you know, evidence about its helpfulness for working memory. So that's how you address the executive functions themselves. Also things like, um, you know, tools and strategies. So, <clears throat> and this is all that typical ADHD stuff. It's, you know, making sure you have a calendar, a schedule system, setting reminders for yourself, um, maybe having a family meeting once a day or once a week, depending on how complicated your life is. And it could be a three-minute meeting, but just what's going on, what needs to be done, what's the status of this, especially if you've got kids running around in all sorts of different places. And just make sure that everybody's on the same page and it gets put into calendars and schedules and reminders and all that. Um, you can't, you know, you can't blame someone for having ADHD, but you can expect someone with ADHD or not to take steps to do better in their life just as you would expect anybody to take steps to do better in their life. So that's the kind of executive function piece of it. And then I think finally the psychology piece of it is to, I don't know, to take some of the fire out of the interactions and to begin to, you know, to try to get back on the same page or back on the same team so it's a more collaborative kind of process. It may be that if he doesn't see his piece of it, that some of what needs to happen is that the wife here needs to step back out, let him suffer some of his own consequences, not in a punishment kind of way, but just in an awareness kind of way. So he can see that this was really his doing and not her doing, and then perhaps he will be more willing to begin to put stuff in the schedule and have family meetings and, and all of that other stuff. So. Um, there's a lot that can be said about this, but hopefully that kind of sets a foundation. And then through the rest of the questions here, we'll put even more, you know, good ideas into that question. I think that does set a really good foundation for us. Our next question comes from Rick, and he was wondering, how can someone convince their spouse or their boss that they have ADHD and are not just being a difficult person, that this, there is something else going on here rather than a personality flaw? Right. Well, I think that the first thing I would say is, unfortunately, not everybody is willing to be convinced. Um, some people are, and you just got to find the right way to explain it to them. But, but I think it's important to keep in mind here that some people are just not willing to believe this idea of ADHD. Um, and if that's the case, then you need to make a judgment call about, you know, is it even worth going down this road with that person? Because it, it may not be. <clears throat> now, hopefully, these are more the, 
you know, like kind of a pretty small minority of people who are not willing to be convinced. So let's instead talk then about the people who are hopefully more willing to be convinced. I think that, you know, the first thing here is that you need to be willing and you need to show that you're working at least as hard as anybody else on all that ADHD stuff. So being on time and staying organized and remembering to do stuff and all that. That, you know, you are working hard and it's not that you're not putting in enough effort. Because if they see it as a matter of effort, then they're not going to hear anything else that you're saying. Um, I think then it becomes a matter of having a conversation with them about it and saying like, you know, here's some examples. Like you saw how hard I worked on that and then I forgot it and left it at home. Why would I do that? If I had the ability to remember it, why would I have done that? Like, do, did I get any benefit from having to turn around and drive back? Like, was there good songs on the radio or something? Like, how did that benefit me? So to point out those situations where it's not simply convenient that you forgot to do that boring thing that you didn't want to do, but rather that you paid a price for your ADHD. Um, I think it can help also to, you know, explain to them all the hard work that you're putting in, you know, and how it's not just about hard work and it's not just about good intentions. And that perhaps showing them something from something online or a part of a book or a magazine or something else that's coming from what they think to be a reputable source, how, you know, that explains ADHD. And of course, the question is there's here is, do they not believe in ADHD in general, or do they just not believe in ADHD for you? And some of that may be that they're just misinformed. So like, if someone has that old, old idea that, you know, if you have ADHD, it means that you're hyperactive, and you're not hyperactive, well, then obviously you don't have ADHD. But that's because that idea that you have to be hyperactive if you have ADHD is an incorrect idea. So you might need to correct that and say that, well, you know, not everyone with ADHD is hyperactive or I was hyperactive, but that was, you know, 30 years ago when I was a kid and I'm not hyperactive now, but that's okay because you don't have to be hyperactive and most adults are not hyperactive. So to sort of explain to them. Um, but also keep in mind that this may not be a one-time discussion. Some of these big topics are two, three, four, five time kind of conversations and you kind of work your way through it. And it's an important conversation to have and it can be very difficult for a lot of people, a lot of couples. Um, our next question yeah. comes from Mark. And you, a few minutes ago you mentioned medication as part of the treatment for adult ADHD. Uh, Mark's question is, does medication really help with executive function deficits? And are there some aspects of executive function that are not improved by medication? So he's got a, a medication question for you. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, generally speaking, um, medications for ADHD tend to improve executive functions for people with ADHD at least while the medication is active. So at the end of the night, you're back to where you started. At tomorrow, if you don't take it again, you're back to where you started. Um, now, having said that, um, that applies to groups of people with ADHD. 
lose. So if you took 100 people with ADHD and we gave them, you know, medication and they did better, you know, we could measure some improvements in, in executive functions. But, you know, having said that, you as one person taking medication may find that some of this stuff gets better, but other parts maybe they don't or they just get a little bit better. So, for example, you may find that your working memory is better and you're better able to kind of hold your attention on things, but you still don't have a good sense of time. Um, so, or, or whatever. So, um, so sometimes it's a matter of kind of playing with the medications a little bit in this, and obviously with your prescriber, but um, finding what is the right medication, what's the medication that's going to be best for you and or the dose and or the, you know, timing of when you take it or other factors. Um, and, you know, see if you can, you know, find a regimen that's really going to do the best job for you. And, of course, that might change over time as your life circumstances change over time, for example. All right. Well, following on a question about medication, I've got two questions having to do with behavior management um, aspects of it. And one is from Gregory and one is from Julie. And Gregory would like to know if social skills training can help adults improve their communication skills, adults with ADHD. And Julie has a similar question. She was wondering if mindfulness, pardon me, mindfulness, Mindfulness training is useful for people affected with ADHD. So those two aspects following on our, our previous question here. Sure. So um, in terms of social skills training, the answer, you know, the answer is it depends. And the reason why it depends is it depends on what exactly the social skills problem is. So you know, kind of like I said before, folks with ADHD, they know what the right thing to do is, but they don't necessarily do it consistently. So, um, for example, if the problem is that someone with ADHD tends to interrupt other people, they, know, they may know really well that you're not supposed to interrupt, and they may feel really terrible about it afterwards, but in the moment, they still don't, they still can't stop themselves. So, um, the the challenge then with social skills training is if it's most if it isn't a matter of knowledge that the person doesn't know it um, it's it may not be as helpful um, also if it's a matter of practicing something in a particular setting it may not generalize out to other settings so I think that the places where exact where social skills training could be helpful is in teaching skills that someone doesn't really understand very well, so things like reading nonverbal cues or something like that, or perhaps, you know, between romantic partners, um, you know, creating cues for like, honey, you just interrupted me, um, or if you're at a party, honey, you just interrupted them, um, other things like that to kind of give that person the cues to then do the things that they know that they're supposed to do. Um, and again, kind of coming back to medication, um, sometimes medication enables people with ADHD not just to do things like pay better atten attention to a teacher or to a presenter in a meeting, but also enables them to more effectively use, do what they know in terms of social skills. So, you know, sometimes again it's that combination of a little bit of medication and then working on the specific skills that are involved. Um, in terms of mindfulness, <coughs> there is there's a small but growing amount of 
of research out there about the benefits of mindfulness for ADHD. So, um, and one of them, you know, one of, actually probably more at this point, more than one study, um, was done by a psychiatrist named Lydia Zylowska, who's written a book called The ADHD Mindfulness Prescription, um, which talks about ADHD and mindfulness. So um, it's hard to not recommend mindfulness in the sense that whether it helps your ADHD directly or not, it's got to be helpful for other things also in terms of general stress reduction, in terms of self-awareness, in terms of emotion management. So I think there's a lot of good things to be said about mindfulness training. Um, the only issue with it is, you know, do you have the time to do it in a consistent way? And unfortunately, like many skills, it needs to be practiced to get better at it. Um, but, you know, if you have the time and you do it, I think it can be really kind of a, it can be a helpful thing. And uh, although there's lots and lots of mindfulness programs out there, uh, Lydia's program is more kind of tailored to folks with ADHD. So you don't have to like sit for four hours and do nothing, which will make most people crazy, but especially people with ADHD feel kind of crazy. Sitting still can be a difficulty for a lot of people. One of our questions now comes from, uh, it really can. Um, one of our questions comes now from Derek, and we know that people who are affected with ADHD tend to have uh, difficulty switching gears, that they will perseverate on something that they find highly stimulating, and we also know that television can be very stimulating for many people. So Derek was wondering, um, he comes home, he seems to get very wrapped up in TV, and his wife has noticed this. He was wondering how can he kind of reduce the chances of being um, sucked in by the television that this overstimulation could be a problem and, and how do couples deal with that? Sure. Well, you know, this, so basically what we're talking about here is hyperfocus and hyperfocus in a way, one of the ways of looking at hyperfocus is it's sort of a loss of the sense of time. It's that that passage of time kind of disappears. So you know, the idea of, oh, I'm just going to watch one show, half an hour, somewhere along the way when their attention gets too sucked into it, that half, that notion of a half hour kind of disappears. Like they don't notice that one show has gone on to the next, to the next, to the next, and that a half hour has actually become like two hours. So it's that they've lost that sense of time during that period of hyperfocus. So I've got a number of different thoughts about it. One of them is, um, that it's, for certain things, it's much, much easier to not start it than it is to start it and then stop it. So if turning on the TV becomes too sticky, that you, you get stuck there, um, it may be that the thing to do is you don't turn it on. So you just don't turn on the TV in the first place, or you don't turn it on until some other things have been done first. Um, and that way you're less likely to, you know, sort of the idea is I'm going to turn on the TV, I'm going to watch a little bit, and then I will go and do the laundry or something. And then too much time goes by and the laundry doesn't get done. Maybe you'd get the laundry going first before the TV goes on in the first place. Um, alternatively, if you don't have a good internal sense of there it's been half an hour, time to turn it off, you could set the sleep timer on the TV, you can set an alarm on your phone, or, you know, or alternatively, his wife can chime in and say, hey, hon, it's been half an hour. Let her be the timer. 
you know, on the one hand, it's not her job to monitor and, you know, stop his TV watching. However, I would much rather have her who is perhaps better at tracking this or is at least not absorbed in the TV show. I'd much rather have her say, hey, hon, it's time to stop. And then rather than being resentful about, oh, here we go, another, you know, another wasted night stuck in front of the TV. I'm up here doing the laundry while he's down there working. You know, like that's not a good situation for her, but it's also not a good situation for him. So maybe it's one of those like everybody wins here if she gives him a little bit of a poke about the TV. Um, and then presumably he does other things to kind of like reward that behavior or make it up to her. Um, but in terms of TV in particular, um, you know, I tend to, I tend to recommend rather than just watching live TV and having it just chattering in the background, is to be a little bit more kind of intentional about it in the sense of you, if you have a, you know, if you have a DVR and really you should because they're like the best invention ever, um, use it, meaning record specific TV shows select one of those shows, watch it, and then you're done. Or at least, you know, what happens is when you watch a, a specific show, it comes to the end, and now there's a break point. As opposed to when you're watching live TV, there's very much of a flow from one show into another. And they put the teasers at the end of the, of the next show at the, you know, they put the teasers for the next show at the end of this show because they want you to stick around and like there's smart people thinking how to keep you stuck there. So if you, whereas if you have a DVR, you specifically select the show and then when it's over, there's a break and you either choose to start another show or you choose not to. But it's a more intentional, conscious kind of a process and it isn't that just drifting away into the night kind of a thing that can happen with live TV. And then whatever the analogy might be for other activities that people tend to get stuck in. Getting stuck can be a, a pretty big problem. Uh, a lot of people have experienced, just as you said, one thing flowing into the other. Our next question, to flow into our next question, uh, we have a question now from Lisa, and she's wondering what the difference is between therapy and coaching, and how someone could know which would be more effective for them with, with executive function issues. So we get this a lot of times at the National Resource Center on ADHD. People are asking that question, what is therapy, what is coaching? Well, aren't they the same thing? How can a therapist be a coach, but a coach might not be a therapist? So this is a, a question a lot of people do have. Right. And, you know, at the risk of being a little bit facetious here, God, I wish I knew the answer to that question. Because, you know, <clears throat> The problem is that um, it's easy to define the differences between coaching and therapy when you're really looking at the extremes. So, you know, like psychoanalytic therapy, when you lie on a couch four days a week and talk about your mother, okay, that's going to be very different than, you know, coaching, which is very sort of like goal-directed and, you know, business coaching on how to find a new job or something. Um, so though, that's an easy thing to say how they're different. The problem is a lot of what is good therapy for folks with ADHD uses a lot of kind of coaching ideas and a lot of coaching for folks with ADHD uses a lot of therapy ideas um, and specifically kind of more cognitive and behavioral ideas um, in terms of, you know, identifying uh, issues, uh, you know, what are the barriers, 
to doing what you need to do, um, what are the steps to take. So there's a lot of blurring of the boundaries as far as I can tell between coaching and therapy. Um, and part of that is that, you know, people steal good ideas in the sense that, you know, when therapists come up with good ideas, coaches steal them as they should. They're good ideas. And when coaches come up with good ideas, therapists steal them too because they're good ideas. So, um, so in some ways, the differences between coaching and therapy has more to do with um, who's doing it. And, you know, certainly as a therapist, I do a lot of kind of coachy kind of things and I tend to be more focused on the present and getting things done, although I certainly will get into other deeper psychological stuff and family dynamics and all that that coaches will tend not to do. Um, so sometimes the difference is that therapists for, who actually know about ADHD and are good at it will do therapy stuff and also some coaching stuff, whereas coaches will tend to do, you know, at least, again, the good ones who know what they're doing will limit themselves a little bit more to just the coaching kind of things. Um, and the reason is that coaches getting too much into therapy stuff without the training in it can get themselves into a little bit of trouble sometimes. Um, so that's the risk of seeing a coach. The risk of seeing a therapist is if they don't really understand ADHD and executive functions, they're going to assume all this kind of weird psychological dynamics, couple dynamics kind of stuff, and which is a complete waste of time if the reason why the husband can't remember to pick up milk on the way home is that he has a crappy memory. This isn't about psychological dynamics. I mean, it becomes psychological dynamics, but let's not talk about, you know, his childhood and let's not talk about repressed anger to his, at his wife for the reason of why he forgets. Instead, let's talk about setting a reminder to help him remember it. So, um, so the question then is, in terms of whether you want therapy or coaching, is um, I guess it, it's, it depends. Do you think that this is a little bit more of a clear-cut kind of a situation of figuring out what it is that you want to do or how to get it done? Then coaching might be a little bit more appropriate. If you feel like there are more complicated kind of psychological factors or there's anxiety or depression or couple dynamics at work, then a therapist might be more helpful to, you know, address that. Um, and sometimes you work with one of these people and then you do, you get done what you can with them and then you switch over to the other person and you get done what you can with them. So um, it's not necessarily an either or kind of a thing. But very often we do get caught in the idea of either or. Well, one of our one of our questions going with that is either or. Um, when is couple, we have a question now from Yolanda, and she was wondering when is couples counseling a good idea for couples affected by ADHD? And this goes back to an either or. When is a good time? Should couples who are coping with ADHD seek out professional help when they hit those bumps? What's the what's that step? You know, there's sort of there are a couple different answers to that question. When someone is just diagnosed, I think it's really helpful for the person with ADHD to really understand ADHD and how it's affecting them. But I think it's also really helpful for the other person to understand how ADHD is affecting them. And the good news is there's a lot of good information out there at this point, you know, from chat as well as there's books and other sort of things. So, um, so I always encourage the other person, the romantic partner, to also educate themselves. 
And sometimes even just one or two sessions together can be really helpful um, to sort of understand why things have worked out the way that they have. Um, when I have an individual therapy client, I'm always happy to have, you know, a parent or romantic partner come in and, you know, hear their concerns, talk about some of what happens, educate them a little bit, work through a couple little problems that are going on. Um, but I think in terms of couples therapy specifically, um, I guess it's, it would be helpful when it's a situation where it's not just about the person's ADHD, but it's about the dynamics that go on between the two people. And, you know, some of the kind of classic dynamics that come up when a person has ADHD, particularly when it's been kind of undiagnosed and untreated for a while or, you know, undertreated for a while, is things like, um, the non-ADHD partners kind of over-functioning, so they're responsible for too many things and is starting to feel burned out and resentful. The partner with ADHD is feeling like they can never get it right or their partner is always angry and on their case and nagging, and now there's a power struggle between them or, you know, there's micromanaging from the non-ADHD partner, there's cover-ups and lies from the ADHD partner, um, or it's just that you know, the fun has gone out of the relationship because they're always at each other. Um, or, you know, things of that sort where things you just cannot untie it. You just can't pull it apart in that it's not just about the person with ADHD needs to be better at writing reminder notes or something. Uh, I think that's a time where a couples therapist who knows about ADHD and they really, they have to know ADHD, they cannot just be a general couples therapist. It can be really helpful to work on the part that that is affected by the ADHD and how the ADHD is affecting the other person's behavior as well and how the person with ADHD is responding to that other behavior. As well as all the other reasons why couples go into therapy with a couples therapist. But, um, you know, I, I really, I always give the advice that if ADHD is a part of the picture, unless it's clearly unrelated to whatever the couple's issue is, um, that the therapist really should be informed about ADHD if they're going to be most effective. That, that brings us to our next question, and this is from Belinda. And she would like to know, how do you determine how a coach or a therapy knows ADHD? How well do they know it? How well do they treat it? Just what you've said here. How does, how does a couple who's coping with ADHD know that their professional really, really gets it? Right. Yeah, and that, that's an important question. So I think there's a lot of different ways. Um, you know, one of them is that, you know, obviously word of mouth is the best referral often. So if someone else who has ADHD really highly recommends them or says they're really good for my kid or my teenager or, you know, me and my husband, we went and, you know, I have ADHD or he does or something and this person really knew what they were doing, that's a great thing. Um, or if it's, you know, a recommendation from someone at a CHAD meeting or whatever. So personal recommendations are always a good thing. Um, Barring that, other things like, you know, if you look on their website and they list that they, you know, specialize or they treat people with 20 different things um, and ADHD is number 17 on the list, I think we can assume that probably this is not an area of specialty. 
so much as that they've heard of it and they put it on their list or you know if it's like on a you know like a psychologytoday.com psychologist list and you just have to ch you check as many boxes as are relevant um, probably they we can assume they don't have a great expertise if the rest of their website or promotional materials really don't indicate some you know specific interest in ADHD then probably not um, so you know there's things like that that you can look at before you even talk to them um, but I think it's totally reasonable to have I don't know a five or ten minute conversation with someone on the phone before you ever you know come into their office or do an official coaching call um, and you ask them, you like, you know, you get a feel for them and, you, and, and ask, you know, how much of your clientele has ADHD? Uh, just come out and ask them directly. And they should be able to give you kind of a ballpark number. I mean, hopefully they don't have to sit there and count it. But, you know, generally speaking, they should be able to give you some ballpark number um, or whatever other questions you might have. Um, but in terms of the ADHD in general, you know, do you, I don't know, like, are you a member of CHAD? Do you go to conferences? What kind of training have you had in ADHD? Um, it's really unlikely you're going to get anyone who's had coursework training. Like, I hardly ever heard the word ADHD in grad school, sadly. So don't expect that, but that, you know, they've gone to continuing education presentations or they subscribe to the ADHD report or they, you know, every year or two they go to the CHAD conference or something. Like those are indications that someone really does have some special interest and also has continued to educate themselves in this area. This is uh, what you've just said is something that we have mentioned many times at the National Resource Center on ADHD to really get to know your specialist, your therapist, and I ask those questions many times before even making that appointment. A lot of professionals will answer some of those questions on the phone. Uh -huh. Well, our next question is coming from Liz, and she's going to back us up a little bit, and she would like to know how to even begin the conversation with a romantic partner, with a spouse, with a family member that they may have ADHD. How to start that, that conversation when it may be your partner that needs to go and be evaluated to find out if this is the problem? Uh -huh. Yeah, and, I'm, and this is a question that comes up really pretty often. Um, I think it depends. I think it, it depends on, first of all, how aware is this person of their ADHD symptoms? Um, because if they're not very aware of it, then you're going to have to have a different conversation compared to if they really do know very clearly. So, um, you know, as a general rule, teenagers and even young adults um, <clears throat> tend to be less aware of their ADHD symptoms. They tend to under-report or they report them as being not as severe as other people think they are. So, like, if you ask the young adult, they'll say, um, yeah, I don't know, I guess I... I forget things sometimes, and then you ask their parent or romantic partner or roommate or something, and you get a whole different answer about how often they forget things. So um, someone who is not very aware, the first thing you're going to need to do is have a conversation about basically kind of informing them of, you know, here is what I've noticed. You know, it seems like you forget your keys and lock yourself out a lot. And they're like, no, I don't. That doesn't happen. Like, well. I don't know, like I can think of three times in the last month that that's happened. Um, and then maybe that they're like, no way, I don't, you know, well, okay, I did, but, you know, something happened, some situation 
situational factor. It's not that I'm forgetful. It's that some other thing or it's someone else's fault. You left without telling me and I didn't know that you were going to leave and that's why I got locked out. And, you know, so it may be that what you need to do perhaps is to say, all right, tell you what, let's start keeping track of how often you lose your keys and lock yourself out or something to help them see the frequency of it. Um, <clears throat> but assuming that someone is generally kind of aware of this um, and not too defensive about it, um, <clears throat> or at least not, def not so defensive that they can't have a conversation about it, I think you just sort of, you bring your concerns to them and you just say, you know, it seems to me that you work really hard or you really mean well, but like, man, too often it just seems like it doesn't work out for you. And I know that that's got to be really frustrating or really disappointing or that's got to make you crazy or whatever. So kind of empathizing with their perspective on it. Um, perhaps also putting in your perspective of like, you know, and I got to say it's kind of frustrating for me too. You know, like I know that you often misplace things and you can't find it and that affects you, but like it also kind of affects me because if, if we have to leave and you can't find something, it it's kind of messes up my schedule or then I'm running late and I don't really, you know, and then I'm mad at you and I don't like being mad at you about things. So, um, so to sort of point out here are the things that I've noticed and this is kind of what's going on um, and then maybe even kind of tie in some other things. So it's not just that you tend to forget stuff, but also it seems like you often lose track of time. So you begin to kind of list some things and then say, and, you know, when you put it all together, like, I don't know, a lot of this stuff kind of looks like ADHD to me, or it, it seems like from what I know about ADHD, this kind of sounds like that might be the thing. Like all of this is really just different parts of ADHD. So that might be one way to present it. Or another way is to say like, oh, I was on this webinar, it was kind of interesting, or I came across this website somehow, I came across this website or I found an article and I was reading it and man, a lot of that stuff kind of really sort of looked familiar to me. It kind of seemed like they're talking about some of the stuff that you have trouble with and sort of present the information that way. Um, but the more defensive somebody is, the less, ironically, the less definitive probably you want to be. So you don't say, you have ADHD, I know it. Uh, instead, you might want to say, you know, I kind of wonder if you might have ADHD. Or, you know, I, was, I stumbled on this website about ADHD and it, uh, I don't know, like, sort of looked like, some of that stuff sort of looked familiar. So to put a little bit more doubt, because if you, if someone is too defensive and you try to kick down the front door and say, this is you, um, they're just going to get more defensive. As opposed to if you take a little bit of a softer approach, they might be a little bit more willing to take a look at it. Um, and then, of course, this brings us back to an earlier question, which is if someone is, says, well, okay, fine, maybe, but they're not willing to do anything about it, perhaps one of the things then is to say, all right, you know what? the next time you lock yourself out, I'm not leaving work to come let you in, all right? Like we have talked about this, if you lock yourself out, that is your problem. And I recommend that you come up with some solution, but like I'm tired of having to be the one to bail you out of this. So 
you know, I still love you, I still think you're great in lots of other ways, but I'm done being your key person. So if you get locked out, you're on your own. In that, you know, after they lock themselves out a couple more times, now all of a sudden they might have a little bit more motivation as well as a little bit more clarity to seeing how they're doing to actually do something about this. Well, having been locked out on my own, I understand how this can be a problem. Mm -hmm. we've, we've got uh, one more question, and uh, this comes from Peggy. And she has a question that many people affected by ADHD and are in relationships share. And she was wondering, how could she convince her spouse to forgive her for mistakes that happened because in the past because of ADHD. And this is something we hear from a lot of spouses, a lot of romantic partners, both men and women, how to go about repairing that relationship. Right. Yeah, and this is a very common question. I mean, I had a couple in my office this morning, and we were talking about exactly this thing. So, um, you know, I think that... I have a saying that you can't leave the past in the past if it's still happening in the present. So, you know, if the thing that was happening in the past was that, um, I don't know, you kept forgetting to pay the bills on time and you're still forgetting to pay the bills on time with not really any noticeable progress, I think it becomes really hard to say to your spouse, you know, we're not talking about the past, we're just talking about this month. Because your spouse is then going to say, well, yeah, but this month is the same as the last 15 months. Why, why would we not talk about the past? Like, it's all the same thing. It's all relevant. So the way to leave the past in the past, then, is to make the present different, which means hopefully actually doing better at some of this stuff. So, um, or in the sense of, like, if the thing is getting the bills out on time, actually getting the bills out on time. Um, which may be a matter of, you know what, it's not perfect, but it is better. So sometimes it's a matter of kind of positive attending, which basically means looking, making a conscious effort to look for the positives. So don't just look for the negatives, which is what we do when we're mad at each other, but to look for the positives. So like, let's look for the progress that is occurring here. Um, and even if, whether there's progress, and even if sometimes there isn't, at least to be clear about how, you know what, I am trying. I am working harder than you on this one. I am putting in good effort, so my, you can't doubt my intentions. Maybe the outcome isn't there that we would both like, but you can't doubt my intentions. Um, and, you know, in that, and to make clear that intentions and actions are not necessarily the same thing. And, of course, anybody who's tried to lose weight knows that intentions and actions are not the same thing because knowing, having an intention to lose weight and knowing how to do it does not automatically translate into losing 15 pounds. So, um, so to help the partner really understand how the ADHD played a part in this and how the ADHD undermined that good effort and good intentions. But ultimately, it becomes a matter of the other partner seeing this as me holding on to my resentment burns me way more than it burns you. So that them being angry and resentful is really a punishment for them. It's, it, I mean, it does negatively affect you also, but it affects them far more. And that, you know, letting that go will make their life easier. Um, perhaps 
it also requires that both of you guys need to do some things a little differently. Like if we want different outcomes and, you know, the reasonable expectations, we got to do something different here. Both of us got to do something different here to make it actually work out differently. Um, which again, it kind of creates a different present from what the past was and that, you know, recent history has been better. So maybe there is a certain statute of limitations there of like, you know what, that was a year ago. Let's not talk about it. It doesn't bring us anywhere good. Let's talk about now, what's happening now. Um, and some, and again, this is where if you do have a therapist, an individual therapist who knows ADHD, sometimes having that romantic partner come in even just once or twice can make a really big difference in their understanding and their willingness to hear some of this. So, um, you know, so there's a lot that goes on there, but the good news is everybody's got a part to play, and the more people who have a part to play, the more we can actually do something big and different from what it used to be. Big and different is always a good approach, a good start. Dr. Tuckman, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. This has been very helpful for our audience, for our members, and uh, we are very pleased to be able to host you today. Well, it's my pleasure, and like I said, I always love doing these, and, you know, Chad is a great organization, so I'm always happy to help. Well, we are happy to have you today. Thank you again for participating in this presentation, and we hope that you enjoy the rest of your day. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes so we can continue to bring great content to you. adults the fastest growing population to be diagnosed with ADHD? Is there such a thing as adult onset ADHD? Get answers to your questions at www.helpforadhd.org. That's www.help and the number 4 ADHD.org.